0: From the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio. This is the porch.
1: What's astounding to me is just the sheer the sheer energy, the, the power of water. There's nothing that you can do. This house was completely moved. It was turned sideways.
0: It was exactly one month ago that the remnants of Tropical Storm Fred passed through Western North Carolina. In just a few hours, parts of the region saw historic flooding that killed six people and left hundreds of millions of dollars in damages that are still being cleaned up. I'm Matt Bush, and in this hour, we go to the places that were most devastated, Canton and Crusoe, to hear from those who saw the waters rise in front of them. We visit the campground where four of the six people who died lived and we finish by asking the literal trillion-dollar question facing us, and what will it take for us to take it seriously? First, we go down to the river to hear from those who lived through it.
1: And where we're going is near the east fork of the pigeon. You can see clothes and stuff strewn all around. Typically, you're still looking at about 10 to 12 feet below. The water line was well up. If you can see on this side, was well above that truck on this side. So we're talking probably about 25 or 30 feet.
2: I am Peter Constantian. I'm the pastor of Long's United Methodist Church and Crusoe United Methodist Church. And I'm the facilitator of the Canton Missional Network. It was really Tuesday afternoon when we started getting all of the emergency notifications on our phones and I was checking the weather pretty regularly. We had had rain over the past week.
3: My name is Victoria Fox. I am a resident of Canton, North Carolina. It had been raining all day. By the middle of the day, um, we were getting every bit of the water runoff from the surrounding streets.
4: My name is Christina Smith and I am an alderwoman in the town of Canton it got to a point where you could tell the urgency in some of the communications from town staff and county officials. And as the day grew on, In early afternoon, it became really clear that there was imminent danger in the area. There was actually police tape across the bottom of my hill. The street essentially almost turned into a river at one cross point.
1: Tony Cope, captain with the Haywood County Sheriff's Office. I've lived here all my life and uh, I've been uh, been on the Sheriff's Office for 23 years and I've never seen anything uh, happen as fast as that did.
5: My name is Michelle Lowe and I am one of the owners of Southern Porch with my husband, Nathan. We are Canton residents. I've actually lived here my whole life. So actually, I was uh, in the middle of getting my hair done um, at a salon in Dillsborough, and she had just gotten some color on my hair, and I had gotten a uh, phone call from my daughter's school saying, please don't panic, but I just wanted to let you know that uh, your kids are on the bus and it has been stranded in water and uh, we are sending a uh, fire and rescue to go get them. And luckily my kids were okay, but it was quite some time before I could get them. So of course that's nerve wracking for any parent. And it was terrifying.
4: I mean, you could smell everything from propane to gas to you just would see debris going through and there were Pieces of cement just moved, and these are massive chunks of cement, like as big as my body.
6: My name is Greg Christopher, and I'm the sheriff of Haywood County. I got a call from my wife, actually, uh, because I live in the Bethel community at noon, and she told me that uh, water was starting to come up into our basement of our new home. So uh, I started. Uh, I started digging a ditch actually around my house with my shovel uh, to uh, try to get the water to uh, to to leave from where it was at right there in front of our garage door. As I noticed the water continued to uh, to, to or the the rain continued so hard that I went back inside. I changed clothes because I'd gotten wet. And I told my wife, I said, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go back to the office. I'm going to stay here in Bethel just in case that this river does get, get large.
7: My name is Zeb Smathers, the mayor of Canton. On the day of the flood, uh, for the most part of the day, uh, there was an understanding that we were going to be experiencing heavy rain, some possible flooding, but none of us were prepared for what I have classified as a flash flood from hell. About 3.30 that day, there was a retaining wall that collapsed on one of our main roads. At that point, I began to realize that the the game was changing.
3: By about 4.30 in the afternoon, my creek was flooding and coming into the yard, and I had two foot of water in my basement.
2: The river was extremely high and um, uh, just the, a chocolate, a milk chocolate brown color, and just oscillating waves and lots of debris floating down already the bridge was shaking i could feel the vibration as the water uh, pushed its way underneath the bridge
6: so i left my residence went down to the river saw what uh, what i knew was going to cause trouble and i immediately got on the radio and started calling deputies to come to bethel and uh, that was, uh, that, that was uh, really the start of what uh, ended up being a very long night for us.
1: We were doing water rescues out of this mobile home park up here on the left. One that sticks out in my mind of a, a three-year-old, a six-year-old, and a 13-year-old that were trying to get to the roof of the house. You can see the water lines are to the top of the green on this.
7: At this point, the river had basically divided Canton. You couldn't get from one bank to the other. And on the way back through, I called Dr. Hamlet, Ralph, an alderman and friend, and I said, where are you? And hes I mean, his his daughter and him were still in the home. He says, well, you know, this is not going, you know, this can't be getting that bad. I said, Ralph, you've got to go. I said, I'm going to park my Jeep, and I'm going to come get you. I'm Dr.
8: Ralph Hamlet. I'm an alderman for the town of Canton. I recall hearing a voice, and that voice belonged to Zeb mothers. I remember Zeb coming through the water,
7: and it was waist high. I was able to wade through the water, get him and his daughter out.
8: He was there doing what he did as a man. Forget the title of mayor as a fellow human being, helping my daughter and my wife and my, my, myself to safety. But he didn't stop there.
7: And then I asked Ralph, I said, is there anyone else? And said, our neighbor is still in there.
8: After he got us to safety, the first words, is there anybody else? And I said, there, there, there's a young lady and the house next door to mine. And before I could say anything, he was going back through the water, going
7: to the home next door. So I waded through even deeper water to her home, pounded on the door. Uh, she finally opened. The water was going into her house. She, she was upstairs. She didn't want to leave uh, because of her cats. And again, I won't use the language, but I said, you know, I, I'm sure they'll be fine. You have to go.
8: He took her, and he was going to lead her through the water, but uh, her, her legs couldn't, couldn't, couldn't make it through, so he picked her up. And he slung her over his back. And so here's the mayor of Canton, my friend, helping this young woman to safety as we watched what was on his mind was saving lives, our lives. He put us in his car, and he said, where can I take you? And you know, at that point in time, you realize you're homeless. You have nowhere to go.
7: went at one point over to my sister's house where she had been evacuated and the water was at her doorstep. We had spent the last several weeks mourning the loss of her husband, uh, Jonathan Jorstad, who played a major role in the community. And and we were in mourning and watching this house they loved so much. I remember the smell of gasoline or kerosene.
2: You know, we had seen you know, big kerosene tanks that had been sitting behind people's house knocked over and floated down the river, and all of that stuff had just poured out into the river or onto the ground on the banks, and uh, the, the air was thick with it.
6: I started noticing the odor of petroleum, and I knew right then that we was going to have problems.
3: Um, It, it smelled like rain, like chlorine, like sewage, and mud, and it, not normal mud, but red clay mud smell, which is very distinct. It smelled like gravel and, and rocks, um, and, and it, it smelled like death.
6: I actually started seeing these green peppers as they were uh, traveling literally in the water and there is fields that is on each side of the road on 276 that i knew produced quite a few uh, green peppers
2: well i i I did see i think one or two green peppers in in the water I learned about later how they all ended up in Canton.
3: I have seen green peppers. I, you know, I've seen them all over Canton. It was very confusing as to why I was seeing so many green peppers in the beginning.
7: First time I saw one of the green peppers was probably about 11 o'clock that evening. The water had flooded all the way to our town hall, police and fire, uh, permanently damaging all of those town facilities. And and which is, you know, these are located relatively in town, a pretty good distance from the river, but they were flooded. And they were flooded in 2004.
5: When I saw the peppers, I immediately thought of my dad back in the 90s. uh, We lived in Bethel. My dad was a farmer, like that's what he did for a living. I remember my dad, like, Almost having a heart attack because we lost everything. He lost every crop that he had in Bethel. Like we literally had to rebuild our lives. It was our family's only source of income. And I know that that's very similar for a lot of these farmers. And I mean, truly, my heart aches for them.
4: When I think about seeing peppers and zucchinis in the pool in the town of Canton, I, what really kind of hurts my heart is thinking about people where those gardens were what they used to put up food for fall winter and these are families that they grow their own food like this was what they would can for winter
6: we need to always have a good working relationship with other people in our communities uh, if you're in law enforcement, you need to know who the fire departments are. If you're the fire departments, you need to know who, you are, who your emergency management folks are. Uh, what uh, helped us in this flood is the fact that we have all worked together before. We have planned uh, events like this uh, for years and years. It's because the relationship that we have with each other and our community being as strong as it is, that people come out and they will help, even in a time that uh, that they should be doing something else, maybe for their family. They're putting other people ahead of them. And uh, what a blessing it is to live in a place like Haywood County that does that.
1: Well, it is devastation and uh, once you you get out and get a minute to ride around and take a look at, at, the, at the situation and you see all these homes destroyed and, People's lives turned upside down, and just uh, just total devastation for something to happen so quick. You know, at the end of the day, you look at it and it looks dramatic, but hey, hey, at the end of the day, don't don't worry about the visual side of it. What bothers me worse than anything is just the humanity side of it, and these people that don't now have anything. That night, there were stories we we had from our first responders the the night of. We were taking people to temporary shelter and finding, trying to find hotel rooms in the middle of tourist season, which is incredibly difficult, and literally all they had were the clothes on their back, and that's still all they have. This,
4: for us, is not normal. Hurricanes and tropical storms, for us, are not normal. Now, is it going to become the norm? Potentially. And with climate change, which I do believe in, we have to figure out how to build and how to sustain our community to be more resilient to these terrors and that's what i'm calling it like this is terrifying I, you know, I think where we start
3: is, you know, once the, the rebuilding is finished, um, we need to make investments in our infrastructure. We need to make sure our bro- our roads and our bridges, that they're in good shape so they're not getting washed out every time we get a massive storm that comes through. It, the, the biggest thing that we can do moving forward is take climate change seriously. The reality is these storms are going to continue to get worse and get more furious and come faster. We have to take climate change seriously. And until we do, we have to realize that this is only going to continue to get worse.
8: And what is this madness that affects this river that I once knew as peaceful? It's the insanity of us as humans. We poison the environment, we heat the climate. And then we deny it, and say this is natural, this is, this is what would occur, this is not what occurs. To turn the image of a beautiful river, peaceful, into this hateful thing, and the, the hateful thing is in our minds. If there is anger there in the river, it's saying, don't do this.
2: You know, I try to sit down and comprehend the loss that people are experiencing right now. I almost feel like as a pastor and as a faith leader, you know, it's my responsibility to make time to grieve and to contemplate the loss. And we've just experienced so much that it's hard to keep up with it. Um, God is incomprehensible. And there are so many truisms that could be said to explain away the problem of human suffering. The one that that rings most true for me as a Christian is that God doesn't save us from suffering, but through suffering, uh, through the suffering of Jesus Christ. And I have seen God at work in this community with people who are suffering and and bringing people together to support them
7: uh, through it. First off, um, you don't put any idea off the table to rebuild and recover. I mean, you look at the money, uh, but you see what can we do to mitigate future disasters. I remember in 2004, we were hit by two 500-year hurricanes. So I thought we were good for a few more years. We made it 17.
3: We, we care about our community. We care about the people that live in our community. Uh, and, and when you see... Canton come back and you see Crusoe come back you know I I want people to know that it was us it was the people that are living here in this community and uh, and, and again that it's a a testament to our resolve and the fact that we aren't going to let anything stop us from doing what's right and doing what we need to do for our neighbors
7: the damage and destruction and death of this flood was met with a greater force of compassion, humanity uh, togetherness cooperation, and that's what's powered us through. It is tragic that it takes tragedies to bring out the best in people. But it shouldn't be that way. It should be a sense
8: of togetherness in the absence of tragedy where we can disagree with each other,
7: but we're not disagreeable. And and once you see that, Um, it's, It's hard to turn away from that and not want to do better and to mend fences and build a better community because after going through something like this, if you're not committed to that and you want to return to the division and the discourse, you're making that call. We don't have to be that way. We can be better. Yes, we can be better. We can do better in our communities. We do not have to be destined to be destructive.
0: That was Zeb Smathers, Dr. Ralph Hamlet, Christina Smith, Greg Christopher, Jeff Haynes, Lieutenant Tony Cope, Peter Constantian, Michaela Lowe, and Victoria Fox. We thank them for graciously giving us their time and sharing their stories. BPR's Lily Kinnep and Corey Valancourt recorded those. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. We'll be back in just a moment after this short break. Welcome back to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush. We continue our look back at the August 17th floods in western North Carolina caused by the remnants of Tropical Storm Fred by going to the place most devastated. Campgrounds are a way of life in western North Carolina and have been long before the current camping craze, which helped bring more than 12 million visitors to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park last year. BPR's Lily Knep went to Laurel Bank Campground in Haywood County. Camping there is more than a weekend activity or a vacation. It's life and
9: family. Sherry Lynn MacArthur still remembers growing up at Laurel Bank Campground in Crusoe. She's now 66 years old.
10: I was raised here, went to school. on the school bus from the campground and people would say you smell like a campfire and I'd look at them and say I live in a campground and they never really understood
9: that but the camp has been here for a long time. MacArthur's father Harold Crawford started building the campground in the late 60s and put up the first official site in 1970.
10: This property that the campground is was uh, a very old poor pasture for cattle, horses, and hogs, and uh, he first built the swimming hole, and then my brother and I would camp on the riverbank in this old pasture, and evidently the light bulb went on, and Harold started with a shovel digging, making the campground.
9: Those few primitive campsites grew into over 10 acres of about 100 sites, including water, electric, and sewer hookups. Some of the campers were even permanently hooked up with porches overlooking the east fork of the Pigeon River. MacArthur took over running the campground in 2004. She says that more than half of the campers are permanent seasonals, who live at the campground from May 1st to October 15th each year.
10: The campground has so much love with all the people, and everybody knew everybody, and they would carry pots of food to a porch and all the girls would have their card games. And we have movie night in the pavilion or on the outside screen it was always fun for the kids just to sit on blankets and oh, potlucks. And uh, it's, it's just, it's been fascinating. And it's such a warm and loving, loving
9: campground. The campground is off of Highway 276 but not far from the Blue Ridge Parkway and the Pisgah National Forest. Lynn Collins is the executive director of the Haywood County Tourism and Development Authority. She says visitors to the great outdoors in the county are a key part of the local economy, especially during the pandemic.
11: I mean, the people who come here and stay in the campgrounds and parks do all the things that our other visitors do. I mean, they go out and spend money in the community, whether it's going out to eat or whether it's at the grocery store or going to attractions, you know, participating in outdoor-related activities and festivals and events. And we've seen throughout the pandemic, we have seen probably some different groups of people here. Unlike
9: hotels, campers do not pay occupancy tax, which makes them hard to track. There are almost 20 campgrounds in Haywood County not including the eight public campgrounds along the Blue Ridge Parkway.
11: I just think that it's developed as part of sort of the original concept of the region overall. I mean, just looking at the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and how some people used to live, basically. And I mean, I think it's just evolved from that and people see opportunities for it and uh, the business is out there and it's just a, a different style of vacation.
9: That style of vacation is what has drawn Betty Parker to staying at Laurel Bank Campground for the last 20 years. She lives in Thompson, Georgia.
12: Campers all have something in common. They like to be out there rather than motels and concrete. We like trees and dirt. She says
9: everyone has a story about how they ended up at Laurel Bank Campground.
12: My husband's uncle and his parents Um, were camped up at Mount Pisgah Campground many years ago, and it was too cold up there. So they came driving down the mountain on 276 beside a river, the east fork of the Pigeon River, and they saw these pretty little campers across the river. So they decided that might be a nice place for them to stay.
9: The Parkers kept coming to visit, first on the weekends and with their daughter, then as a stopover spot during cross-country trips in their RV after retirement, until they were finally able to buy a permanent spot at the campground,
12: we would take what we called a social stroll in the evenings. <laughs> we'd walk through the campground and talk to people as we went by. Sometimes they would join us, and we'd walk up the hill to the upper bridge. And, and this is just a simple little thing, but we'd throw sticks over the bridge and see which one would get get down down river first. <laughs> just just enjoying the simple things of life, watching the chipmunks and the rabbits and the birds, and neighbors that know each other's porches. Sometimes after those social strolls, we'd stop on somebody's porch and have ice cream. People that we knew when we first went there 20 years ago, we're still friends, even though we don't see them now, most of them. Some have passed on, but we're still, we're still connected. We still talk on the phone.
9: Just like every summer, the Parkers were at Laurel Bank last month when Tropical Storm Fred swept through, destroying the campground. MacArthur explains. All that I've said about my campground
10: was mentioned as uh,
9: before the flood, and and then
10: the flood came, and it's just not there anymore. Uh, And uh, that's where, when you lose people to a flood, that's just heart-wrenching. And like I've said all through this, is that, My people were just special. And, uh, it's very hard to to wrap your head around the ugliness of that flood. The water was huge and angry. And it was just taking everything. Campers would be floating, or if they ran into a tree or another camper, they exploded. And, uh it was just very dangerous, very frightening, angry water, just going at a, an unreal speed. It was uh, it was horrifying.
9: Parker and her husband took shelter in a pavilion during the storm, but not all of the campers were safe after the
12: flood. It was devastating, um, and you know we lost four lives from the campground, people that we knew, and um, one lady drove into the raging waters that was crossing the road i had just stopped and backed up i didn't drive into it and just a few minutes later she came and drove into it and uh, people tried to stop her but she went on she thought obviously that she could go through it and those of us standing there there was 12 of us in the pavilion watching it happen it was horror it was absolute horror um I will never forget it. I wish I could get it out of my mind, but I can't. Um, Thank the Lord we were all okay.
9: Of the six people killed in Haywood County during the storm, four were Laurel Bank campers, according to the campground. Frank and Charlene Mungo, Judy Mason, and John, known as Jack, Carlock. BPR met with MacArthur at her home next to the campground. She has been working tirelessly since the flood, but there are still piles of twisted metal along the uneven dirt road and a pile of sand in her front yard where the water came up to her house.
10: It has washed my campground basically away, and um, I don't think I can fix it. It's just too much. But the office got clobbered, and campers went floating down the river, and I lost four people to the water, and I... It was such a happy place that has changed into um, a very sad spot. Talking about the happy days are are great. Great conversations on the memories. But this is just such a bad memory that it is very hard to uh, wrap your head around all of the destruction that has happened. And I hope I just hope I can get it cleaned up. I don't get any help because it's on a private road. It's not state-maintained. So all the debris are in piles, like you see on the news, like down in New Orleans or something.
9: Although Parker and her husband made it through the flood, Jean Parker's health had been in decline. He passed away six days after the storm.
12: Some of the, the other ladies are just are still, I think they're having a harder time with, that part than I am because my other tragedy, the death of my husband, has overshadowed that one.
9: Parker says there is one image from the flood she will always remember.
12: I could only take about six pictures during that flood, but I took one of my husband sitting in a chair. You could tell it was an old man from the back holding a, he was using a a, a long stick for a walking stick. He was sitting there at the front of the pavilion Looking out on the flood, and you could see stuff going down the river in front of him, and that just that told the whole story to me. I I wish that the campground could be again. I don't know that ever will. I won't be able to go back. I can't buy another camper. But I'll never forget those days, and I'll always keep in touch with those people.
9: MacArthur sums up her love of Laurel Bank Campground, where she grew up and raised her three sons this way.
10: There's something special about that little spot. It's magical. It's just, and like I say, it's not for everybody, but the ones that love it, love it dearly. It's just been a super little place here in the community of Crusoe.
9: There is a GoFundMe for the campground. So far, it has raised just over $23,000. I'm Ali Nepp, BPR News.
0: It was in the tributaries, not the main rivers, where the most destructive flooding occurred last month. Hartwell Carson spends a lot of time in those tributaries as part of his work as the French Broad river keeper for Mountain True. I spoke with him via Zoom this week about a variety of issues, starting with what should be the future for lands along our waterways in the time of climate change.
13: I mean, first, when you're thinking of, of human health, um, there's the fact that that the folks that are often living in floodplains are the folks that can least afford to be impacted by flooding events like this. I mean, the high ground is often taken by folks with a higher income scale and the floodplains are often left um, for folks to, to, to build in that really can't afford to lose everything during storms like this. And, and that's really unfortunate. The other thing about floodplains that's important is floodplains is where a lot of our trash and pollution are coming from. I mean, folks think that most of the trash is coming from folks throwing McDonald's bags out their windows, but floodplains flood and all of those, you know, junkyards and and hazardous waste tanks and um, you know, other uses that you frequently see in the floodplain, those are washed into our waterways when you have these big events like this. And that can create a, you know, pretty big and lasting water quality impact to our waterways.
0: I believe the last time I interviewed you was during some flooding we had a couple years ago down at the French Broad River Dog Park. And we're talking about the city of Asheville at least had the money enough to really create a lot of parks along its waterfront. This isn't the case in a lot of other areas that maybe aren't as rich or as large as Asheville and don't have that tax base to generate that kind of revenue. So... What do you see as you go through the areas that aren't in Asheville that are some of the tributaries in, in, in western North Carolina too, the major rivers like the French Broad? What are you seeing in those?
13: The story of the Asheville Riverfront has been a good success story because if you look back, you know, 10, 20 years, they were mostly junkyards, mostly sort of uh, industrial facilities that um, did contribute a lot of pollution to the river when it when it flooded. That's how a lot of the tires and car parts that we're still picking out of the river ended up in the river to begin with so you know i think treating your floodplain as something that you know is is going to flood is is really important um that starts with you know good floodplain ordinances and and good um understanding about what should and shouldn't be built in the floodplain that doesn't happen everywhere i mean for the most part um the floodplain is is sort of relegated to to the uses that we used to see in the asheville river District. But, the junkyards
0: and the industrial uses and, you know, mobile home parks. You've been doing some equity work about this. Uh, tell us a bit about what you've been doing and what it has uh, shown you. The big reason Mountain Trees
13: is, is is gotten into some work around climate change and flooding and the impacts of uh, of climate change It has to do with our environment. It has to do with human health, but it also has to do with equity. And, you know, what we were mentioning is that the folks that can least afford to get to get flooded um, are often the folks that are getting flooded in these storm events. So it's a good convergence of our work that we're working on at Mountain Tree is protecting our environment, but not just protecting our environment for the fishes and the birds, it's protecting our environment for human
0: health Looking back at this flooding, a lot of it happened in the tributaries. It didn't happen necessarily, the destructive flooding didn't necessarily happen in the French Broad River. Uh, It happened in the smaller things, the east and west fork of the Pigeon River, the Pole Creek in Candler. You just said you talked to someone who had had some flooding from Caney Creek in West Asheville. So when you look at the smaller tributaries, the smaller creeks that are seeing these flooding issues, what does that tell us about what we've built and, and what we're facing right now is climate change continues to cause these stronger storms that are affecting us.
13: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, five of the 10 rainiest years on record in the Asheville region have, have occurred since 2009. I mean, I remember there was a time where seeing the river um, at a certain water level, like a, a 10,000 cubic feet per second, was really you know a, an event that you took note of. Now that happens quite frequently. I mean, what we're seeing in a trend in climate change, particularly here, is that we're getting these harder, more frequent rain events. You know, those one, two, three, four, five-inch storms are happening, you know, not every few years, but they're happening several times a year. And that's causing a, a flooding impact as it, you know, these isolated, really hard, really intense storms hit our tributaries but it's also causing a water quality impact. When you when you look at these tributaries up and down the Pigeon River and, and Hominy Creek where a lot of this rain hit, I mean, they're extremely scoured out. I mean, there were, you know, a lot of sediment uh, was washed into our waterways. Sediment is our biggest pollution source, which a lot of people don't realize, but it, it's, it creates a big problem in our waterways at clogging uh, fish gills, destroying aquatic habitat, but also washing more harmful contaminants like E. coli and heavy metals into our waterways. So um, these big hard intense rainstorms are are, are a big problem for safety, but they're also a big water quality problem. Now we've seen our water quality data really take a pretty pretty, uh, steep decline in the last five to 10 years. And what I associate most of that is these harder, more frequent rain events. These rain events create sewer overflows. You know, our sewer systems were not designed to handle the inflow these rain events cause when you get three or four or five inches in an afternoon. Um, It creates runoff problems. It creates stream bank erosion problems and creates a, you know, a big water quality
0: impact. Blockages within these waterways, particularly smaller tributaries, which maybe you know it's easier to block one of those with debris or detritus, or just you know a lot of boulders and rocks and blockages of mud and blockages of sediment. Some of the things you're talking about right now in one of the floods that happened in Candler, some of the business owners said that was the cause of it. There was one portion of Pole Creek that was blocked, and and it ended up blocking, making this big backup that caused a lot of the flooding there. Um, do you see that a lot? And and what what what? How does that get addressed, or is it being addressed?
13: Yeah, we see it a lot in the French Broad because we we just um, it's more obvious there as people are out recreating and, and and running into those problems. It is quite frequent, though, you know, in a in a smaller stream and particularly in the, in the headwaters of the French Broad where the river is just just wide enough that one tree can, kind of kind fo- of fall and block the whole waterway. It's a tough problem because um, you know, on the one hand, those trees provide really good habitat. They provide spaces for aquatic life to live. But on the other hand, when you get a huge blockage, it can create a lot of erosion problems because the water is working its way around. Folks can lose a lot of property, it can create a lot of sediment impacts to a river. It's really not dealt with well. I mean, Transylvania County has created a fund to go remove some of those debris jams so folks can navigate the river.
0: Right, and, and last question. When we talk a lot about climate change, it impacts a lot of things, and you know, I think people put a lot of focus on the oceans, rightfully so. Climate change has a big impact on rivers and creeks because that's what most people outside of the coastal areas live on. As you look at this, I mean, how much is climate change causing this, and what will be the sign when enough people are beginning to take it seriously enough that it's addressed? Climate change is playing a,
13: a huge role in... In, in these more frequent hard rain events that are, that are contributing to a lot of the problems that we listed before. And you know, figuring out how we do climate change mitigation is gonna be extremely important to you know, particularly flood prone areas. That work can't happen soon enough. You know, we need to focus on how do we, how we stop future carbon releases and how we reduce the impacts of climate change in the future. The climate change mitigation work needs to happen, you know, immediately to protect folks like the folks along the Pigeon River when it does flood. We're reducing those impacts that can be done, you know, looking at floodplain policies, but also looking at, you know, stormwater runoff policies. You know, you know, promoting green infrastructure, things that allow water to soak into the ground as opposed to just runoff of parking lots is is another important tool we should be looking at.
0: That's Hartwell Carson, the French Broad Riverkeeper for Mountain True. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team, and when we come back after a short break, we more directly address the trillion-dollar question facing us. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush. Climate change. How much did it affect last month's floods in western North Carolina? Our region does have one of the leading experts... Our region does have one of the leading experts in the world on the matter, Dr. Rob Young, who leads the program for the study of developed shorelines at Western Carolina University. I spoke with him via Zoom after his latest op-ed was published in the New York Times this month. When you saw these two hurricanes come through in the last month, Hurricane Fred and Hurricane Ida, as they came through the southeast and went to other parts of the country, what were your immediate takeaways from what you saw what happened?
14: Well, I think uh, particularly with what we saw with Hurricane Ida uh, stretching, with an impact stretching from Louisiana all, up, all the way up into the northeastern U.S. In a state, the uh, state of Louisiana, that spent more than $20 billion over the last decade building coastal protection and doing it in a very well-organized way, investing in science and engineering investing in building barrier islands and levees and marshes and seawalls and, you know, doing so with a process that prioritizes the spending based on science and local needs. And still we have a storm that's going to cause billions of dollars of damage in Louisiana and has upended again the lives of, Hundreds of thousands of people. And, you know, I think that ultimately the take home message is that no matter how much money we spend on flood resilience and coastal resilience, trying to protect people from storms, you can't protect everything from every storm. And if you are in a vulnerable coastal area, uh, resilience. Perfect resilience is really unattainable. Um, the only way that we can ultimately reduce the vulnerability of people who are living in dangerous places is to solve climate change, uh, because it's a moving target. In Louisiana, you know, they, as I said, they've spent twenty billion dollars. They plan to spend uh, more than twenty billion dollars more. But sea level continues to rise on the coast of Louisiana at a rate faster than anywhere else in the United States. And our hurricanes are becoming supercharged by climate change, supercharged by warm bodies of water, uh, warmer air masses that can hold more water. Uh, The only way I think ultimately over the long run to slow down the rate of impact and the, the level of the disasters that we're seeing is to get a lot more serious than we have been about fixing climate change.
0: Is there anywhere in the Southeast, including where we are in Western North Carolina, is there anywhere in the Southeastern United States that is immune from this in any way?
14: Well, I guess the, the practical answer to your question is no, but there are degrees of exposure and vulnerability, right? Um, You know, we have here in North Carolina just a few weeks ago, we experienced uh, the wrath of tropical precipitation um, that caused a significant amount of damage in Haywood County. But it still pales in comparison to the destruction that a a landfalling hurricane makes in a low-lying coastal region where we're talking about, you know, tens of billions of dollars of damage Uh, and damage to uh, thousands or tens of thousands of individual properties. So, you know, anybody can get caught unawares by uh, storms, flooding, large precipitation events here in the mountains. You know, a lot of our flooding is driven by tropical systems that come up here and, um, and, and drop significant amounts of rainfall in a very short period of time. But the coastal areas are, of course, particularly vulnerable, and the scale of the impact in places like eastern North Carolina compared to western North Carolina is just a completely different scale altogether.
0: And just for our listeners to go back a bit, what has your research shown over the past decade or so? Uh, we talked to you a lot, usually during every hurricane season. We've talked to you, one of us here at the station. What is the what has your research shown as? The last decade has gone on as climate change has gotten worse, and as these hurricanes have become more powerful. What impact is that having on the shorelines in North Carolina and in the southeast? The biggest take
14: home message is that, unfortunately, um, even though we know by and large where the vulnerable coastal areas are, you know, so, as scientists, we have a very good understanding of. Uh, the places in this country, the places in North Carolina that are, are at risk from flooding. The problem is we still keep putting infrastructure in those places. So you can have all the best science in the world that tells you where people are going to be in trouble. But if we don't act on that information in a sensible way, then at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. And You know, the fastest growing counties and municipalities in the country are still largely in the coastal zone. Places like Horry County, South Carolina, Charleston, you know, Wilmington area, everybody's flocking to those places. And so, you know, the frustrating part, I guess, of of our mission here at the program for the study to develop shorelines, our job is to try and communicate this risk and exposure to the general public. And Gosh, you know, a lot of people just don't seem to be listening, and then we're surprised when you combine rising sea level, supercharged hurricanes, and increasing damage um, and displacement of people and interruption of lives. Well, you know, uh, first we should stop doing the wrong thing, and 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 then when we start doing the right
0: thing, it will make a difference. You did some research after what happened a month ago in Western North Carolina, thanks to the remnants of Tropical Storm Fred and the flooding that it caused, particularly in Haywood County. What were you looking at and what did you find?
14: I think primarily we were interested in trying to determine, you know, whether we could have done a better job getting folks out of harm's way. Uh, we looked at the storm hydrographs. So the, the flood levels for the east and west forks of the Pigeon River and areas downstream really just mind-boggling how quickly that water rose in uh, especially in the east fork of the pigeon Uh, it was really like a giant wave or tsunami that that came down that valley Uh, in the water level went up very quickly and came back down very quickly I mean we're talking about around two hours or so that those kinds of events are very difficult to predict when a storm's sits up high up on the divide, you know, in this case, over around where the Blue Ridge Parkway comes across, there are multiple watersheds that that rain is falling in. And the position of that storm just over one or the other can determine which way the water is going to go. And the National Weather Service can get some sort of an idea of whether or not there's heavy precipitation occurring, but they don't know exactly where that water is going and how much exactly is going into each watershed. And even if you had water level gauges that were perfect and went all the way up the river to the top of that divide, you still might have only gained yourself 30 or 45 minutes of warning in this. Um, it just happened so quickly. And then you put on top of that the fact that uh, the folks that were the most vulnerable uh, are in an area that doesn't have great self service, if it's got self service at all. A lot of these folks are probably not sitting there with high-speed internet on their computers, waiting to get notice from you. You know, it's just a really difficult situation to initiate successful evacuations in such a short period of time. And I know when something like this happens, we all always want to try and um, find out who was at fault or you know where did we drop the ball, but. You know, sometimes nature just overwhelms us and the 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 cost to trying to be prepared for something like this in the future would be immense because we would have to instrument every single little watershed in Western North Carolina. You know, I just I'm just not sure that we're going to get to that. And as I said, even if we did, we wouldn't have gained hours of warning for an event like this in an area that would be very complicated to reach out to people. You know, I would say this is the the bad news of all of this, is that the best solution for keeping people safe from the next event is not improving our ability to reach them. It's to make sure that we don't put them back in some place that is dangerous (laughs) and in a structure that is very sensitive to flooding. So, you know, at the end of the day, the best solution to make sure this doesn't happen again is to make sure that vulnerable individuals are not in a, a, a structure that uh, is not flood resistant in a place that is exposed to flooding. And. You know, that's not necessarily the answer that everybody wants to hear, because a lot of folks typically want to just want, they want to go back where they live, where they grew up, where they've always been. But that's the only way to ensure that we're not going to lose lives the next time that there's an event like this. And if you live anywhere in Western North Carolina in a a steep drainage uh, and watershed, like, the East Fork of the Pigeon or the West Fork of the Pigeon, you, you know, you really need to take a serious look at your preparedness for get, getting out, uh, look at your structure and where it's located, and understand that when there's a rain event like this, you should probably go stay with some relatives somewhere else.
0: A really good point, so many good points in that answer, but one that really struck me is that it is sort of the tributaries to the to the main rivers in the area that caused the flooding a month ago. Why, I guess, are those sorts of waterways, why are they so susceptible to climate change and these more powerful storms causing these problems? Yeah, well, t-
14: Typically, those are the areas that we don't have to worry about quite as much because the flooding uh, that, that we're accustomed to is t- happening downstream, right, when they all come together. But if you get a tremendous amount of precipitation that occurs very rapidly in one little watershed then you know this precipitation in Haywood County was a perfect example of how we can have the kind of flood and the amount of water in in that river and even in those uh, the tributaries to the East Fork and the West Fork that we've never experienced before and uh, the role that climate change is, you know, it's it's a little bit difficult to pin down. You um, know, I mean, I'm always uncomfortable blaming any one event on changing climate, but Uh, climate change is going to lead to an increase in the number of events like this, simply because warmer air can hold a lot more water, not just a little bit more water, but warmer air on average over time can hold a lot more water. And so we're going to see rainfall go up and we're going to see it uh, typically go up in events like this. And so that's the linkage between climate change and you know, what we saw here in our community a
0: few weeks ago. My last question, which I wanted to go back to some of your earlier answers, you said, until we start taking this seriously, this will continue. So to you, what is taking it seriously in practice? When you see something, when you finally see something occur and you go like, we're now taking it seriously, what's that going to look like? What will that be when Rob Young says, yes, we're taking this seriously now?
14: (laughs) That's That's a really big and complicated question. I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way, Matt, you know, I've spent my career priding myself on the fact that I can work with people on any side of the political spectrum. I mean, I've been appointed to advise both Democratic and Republican administrations to work on issues related to coastal hazards and flooding and coastal change. And, you know, honestly, I spent a lot of that time working on what scientists call adaptation, which is getting ready to adapt to flooding. And with, adaptation is convenient when you're working in the world of politics because you're not putting the blame for that flooding on anything. You're just recognizing that there's flood exposure and we need to do something about it. So adaptation is easy to work with. What I'm coming to realize is that no matter how much money we spend, we can't adapt our way out of coastal hazards or flood hazards inland. You know, Ultimately, what we really need to do is solve the big elephant in the room, which is changing climate. And um, quite simply, that means we have to change what we're putting in the atmosphere. If we have any hope of... Reducing our hazards in the future, maintaining the coastal economy of eastern North Carolina and the rest of the U.S., we have to get very serious about how we move away from fossil fuels towards clean energy that is not increasing the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. On a positive note, I like to end on a positive note. I will say that that is, in fact, happening. And it's happening without the government playing a gigantic role. I mean, everybody was up in arms about the Green New Deal. Well, the Green New Deal is happening without Congress even getting involved. Uh, I drove with my family out to New Mexico last summer, and we crossed the Texas panhandle, and there were more windmills than there were oil rigs. Clean energy is coming. Uh, The sooner that we all embrace it, the better. And when you don't have that moving target anymore, the money that you spend on adaptation is a long-term investment and not a short-term investment.
0: That's Dr. Rob Young of Western Carolina University's program for the study of developed shorelines. And that concludes this episode of The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. Thank you so much for staying with us this hour. The BPR News Team is Helen Chickering, Cass Harrington, Matt Pikin, Lily Kanep, Corey Valancourt, Megan Kane, and me, Matt Bush. We'll see you again on The Porch very soon. Stay safe.